This week, the most comprehensive catalogue yet of human gene variation. As someone who loves working with extremely large data sets, there's no such thing as too much data. And learning lessons about long dead creatures using CRISPR. And now we can look at things genetically to really ask what are the mechanisms behind these, these patterns we see in the fossil record. Plus sorting through three million compounds to find the perfect painkiller. This is The Nature Podcast for August the 18th, 2016. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Adam Levy. Just before we get started, we'd really like to hear what you think of the show, and there are two easy ways of doing that. You can leave us a review or some stars on iTunes, or you can drop us a quick line with your feedback at podcastnature.com. Tell us who you are, what you do, and what you think. Okay, on with the show. A few hundred million years ago, fish crawled out of the water and started walking. During this transition, fish fins somehow morphed into the limbs, feet and digits found in land vertebrates. There's a fossil that captures this moment in evolution. Its name is Tiktaalik, and it's a fishy thing with a fin, but the bones inside that fin correspond to elbows, wrists and shoulders. Its discoverer is Neil Shubin, a paleontologist and developmental biologist at the University of Chicago. He's been wondering, ever since he found it, how fins might have turned into feet – and his team has now used everyone's favourite gene editing technique, CRISPR, to recreate some aspects of this shift in zebrafish. Here's nature reporter Ewan Calloway in conversation with Shubin. How do scientists know that fish fins turned into limbs in in land vertebrates? We have many layers of evidence to, to show that. The first is the DNA record. That is, you can see the relationship between fish uh, to to tetrapods, to limbed animals. And we can trace the, the, the DNA sequences. The other important line of evidence is the fossil record. And when we look at the fossil record, uh, particularly in rocks about 375, 365 million years old, we start to see intermediate creatures between finned ones and limbed ones. We've got fossils are showing that this transition happened between, between fins to limbs of tetrapods, and we've got evidence in, in DNA. What are the big questions? Well, the big questions are, you know, if you look at a fish fin, you know, the, the whole terminal end of it is made up of these fin rays, these, which is a particular kind of bone. And one thing we see in the fossil record is that in the transition from fins to limbs, there's the loss of the fin rays with the gain of digits, fingers and toes. So you're trading off one kind of bone for another. And one of the mysteries is how did that happen? How did our hands and feet come into being? And also, how were the, um, the uh, fin rays lost? So that transition from fin ray to digit is a really big unknown for us, has been both in the fossil record uh, as well as developmentally. Which is the subject of your team's uh, paper in, in this week's Nature. How did you tackle this question? Well, this was a study that actually began about three years ago. And we were interested in the question of, you know, how were fin rays lost and how were digits gained? And we were working on one set of genes called Hox genes because we knew in mice that certain members of these Hox genes, it's a gene family, are actually responsible for patterning and specifying the wrist and digits in mice and people. The question is, what's happening in fish? So that was a quest for a long time, but then technology changed. You know, that's when the whole new gene editing technology, such as CRISPR-Cas, new ways to permanently label cells, these came into being and allowed us to ask questions which were previously impossible to do experimentally uh, in fish. Now, CRISPR-Cas allowed us to knock out these genes in fish. Then the other study done by Andrew Garricky, who is a graduate student in the lab, 
is he permanently marked the cells that had Hox gene activity. And he was able to trace them from the embryo to three months later uh, in an adult fish. I don't suppose you gave fish feet, did you? <laughs> no, we didn't. So we do end up with fish when we tinker with the genes that have fingery fins. But what we found, which was truly remarkable, and literally you could have knocked me over with a feather when Andrew and Tet came in with the results, was that the genes that mark the wrist and digits in mice and people actually mark what's known as the fin fold, the fin webbing uh, in, uh, in fish. Uh, that was truly a surprise result because that sort of overturned a lot of what I thought of as a paleontologist about how these bones are related. It showed that the, the same set of cells that are used to make our fingers and toes uh, in fish are actually making the whole fin webbing, and in particular the fin rays. What did you think before that as a paleontologist? Well, as a paleontologist, I taught, studied, and trained, thinking that what's happened is these are two different kinds of bone that are completely unrelated evolutionarily or developmentally. These results challenge those assumptions. What we always thought was that you had a trade-off between one kind of bone, fin rays, for another kind of bone, uh, digits. That is, you lose one and you gain another. This is showing that really what happens is these are two, two endpoints of the same developmental process, and it shows a very simple way for this transition to likely have happened. So you have an idea now of the molecular changes that gave rise potentially to something like Tiktaalik? Yeah, exactly. That's what's beautiful. I mean, we can sort of see the fossil record and begin to, begin to sort of outline what, how the transition happened, and now we can look at things genetically and at the cellular level to really ask what are the mechanisms behind these, these patterns we see in the fossil record. Earlier in our interview, you mentioned a technique, CRISPR, that we've been hearing a lot about on the Nature Podcast. I think that's safe to say, but mostly kind of in, in terms of medical uses. Um, are, you, are you unique in an evolutionary biologist who's using this technique to, to ask questions about the past? No, I think what's happening to us as, as paleontologists and developmental biologists is we're now able to use technologies to ask questions and answer questions that were previously sort of hidden to us. And CRISPR-Cas is one of those because it's a very easy to use technique and it applies and it works on so many different kinds of species. What you can now do is really sort of select the species that's best to answer the question you're interested in and then apply these technologies to it. Neil Shubin crisping up fish fins and ending up with fingers, almost. For more on his paper and a News and Views article, head over to nature.com nature. Coming up later in the show, the one in three million compound that can kill pain with fewer side effects than morphine. Plus, we bring you senior sharks and erosion on Saturn's moon in the research highlights. First, though, the most comprehensive catalogue of gene variation in humans and how useful it already is in the clinic. Robert Green is a medical geneticist in Boston. At Brigham and Women's Hospital, Broad Institute and Harvard Medical School. And one day at the end of 2014, a new patient came to see him. The woman's mother had died of a rare prion disease. Doctors thought the mother's disease was caused by a gene mutation, and the daughter wanted to know if she also carried the same mutation. There was a 50-50 chance she would, and the condition was a death sentence. Working with this daughter, she was tested and she was negative for the mutation. Despite the good news, the woman wasn't completely relieved. She had a sister, and her sister didn't want the test. Her sister was living with the fear, the 50-50 chance that she would inherit this terrible mutation. 
Green decided to look into his patient's predicament a little more. He knew about a huge new database of genetic variation that promised more detail than ever before on the mutations that appear in genes. He also knew that another group of scientists had been using the database to look at the genetics of prion disease, checking which mutations were really linked to the disease and which were in fact benign. These investigators demonstrated that some of the mutations for prion disease that we had previously thought were pathogenic were in fact red herrings. And as it turned out, the mutation in this family that I was working with was one of those. The patient's doctors had been right and wrong. The mother had died of prion disease, but it was a complete coincidence that she also had this mutation. It wasn't related. The mutation was not the cause after all. In December 2015, just a couple of days before New Year, Green called the sister in to see him. And we were able to sit down with her and say, you know this sort of Damocles that you've been living under for so many years, this notion that if you're carrying this mutation, you're going to get this disease and you're going to die from it. Well, we can relieve you of that concern. It, it was a rather dramatic moment to actually be able to deliver this kind of good news. The reason they could get to this good news was because of the sheer size of the database and how comprehensive it is. In the past, if geneticists spotted a rare mutation in a patient with a rare disease, they'd assume that the mutation caused the disease. But when you look across enough people's genes, especially including different types of population, plenty of these so-called rare mutations start popping up all over. Say 10% of people in the database have a particular mutation. Well, 10% of people certainly don't have a particular rare disease. So this single gene can't be causing this disease. That's the kind of finding that let Robert Green reveal his good news to the sisters. We'll come back to the prion story, but first let's turn to the giant database that made this result possible. As someone who loves working with extremely large datasets, there's, there's no such thing as too much data. This is Daniel MacArthur. He's a geneticist and self-confessed data head at the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard. He's also part of a group called the Exome Aggregation Consortium. Exact for short. The, the goal of this project was to pull together a particular type of sequencing data that we call exome sequencing data. When Daniel says exome sequencing data, this is what he means. So these are the pieces of the genome that encode protein coding genes. There are 60,000 exome sequences in the database. It's 10 times larger than the previous biggest exome catalogue published only three years ago, and 2,000 times larger than the first exome efforts that were only a few years before that. Partly the technology is better, but partly it was crowdsourcing. Daniel and his team appealed to labs around the world for their raw data. Two dozen labs donated exomes. The sequences are really high res too. The Exact database has been available online for a couple of years now. And over that time, the resources had over 5 million page views. So that's, a, that's an enormous number of people basically coming in, looking at the variations, typically in their own patient samples. But this week in Nature, the Exact team released their own analysis of the dataset, what they've learned about our genes through examining the database. Daniel gave me his highlights. Firstly, there's a rainbow of variants, and lots of them are pretty much unique. We're finding right now about one genetic change every eight bases throughout the protein coding regions of the genome. So this really is a very high resolution look at, at that variation. These variants are overwhelmingly extremely rare. 
In fact, more than half of these variants are seen only once in 60,000 people. The other, I think, unprecedented observation that we can make is to identify genes or regions of genes that are almost completely missing genetic variation within the population. And what that tells us is that these are pieces of the genome that are extremely important. They, they just can't tolerate genetic changes that actually affect their function. There are thousands of these in the data set, and the ones that have been identified make proteins or transcribe RNA, essential cell maintenance. If they're mutated, the embryo rarely even survives. That means that if a clinician does see a mutation in such a gene, they know that it's likely to cause disease. I said we'd return to the prion story. In Robert Greene's office that December day, the news he could deliver was happy. But it won't always be that way with Exac. Remember the researchers who combed the database, checking whether prion mutations were disease-causing or not? Well, one was a woman who herself had a prion gene mutation. Her name is Sonia Vallab. Her collaborator was her husband. Having people involved in the project who have a, a strong personal stake in driving the project forward really helped all of us to focus on what actually mattered. So the fact that we were building a resource here that was not only a, a sort of abstract scientific resource, but a resource that would actually have an impact on the lives of patients and their family members. The news was not good, though, when the team came to look at Sonia's mutation. Sonia's mutation turns out to be one of these genetic changes that, as far as we can tell, does actually confer 100% risk of suffering from prion disease. But there was a ray of light. They also discovered a handful of people who were surviving with only one copy of the gene intact. They're walking around making less of the protein, and they're fine. So treating the disease by decreasing the levels of this protein doesn't seem to do any damage. The study has also helped clinicians like Robert give more good news to more people. Redefining the mutation from pathogenic to benign was, in one fell swoop, relieving a whole category of people around the world from the fear that they would otherwise carry. Robert Green and before him, Daniel MacArthur, both based in Boston. The Exac browser is available at exac.broadinstitute.org. That's Broad spelt B-R-O-A-D. Find the paper and a news and views article with plenty more detail and plenty more data at nature.com nature. How do we stop pain? Not just the pain of a niggling headache, but really severe pain like the pain after an intensive surgery or the pain caused by cancer. There are a whole host of powerful painkillers available for these applications, and they're all variations on one particular chemical, morphine. These opioids have fantastic analgesic properties, but they also have a whole host of side effects. For decades, there's been hope that unpicking their pathways in the brain might help us have the good without the bad. Well, now a team may have found a new type of drug which does exactly that. I called up one of the researchers, Peter Gemeiner, to find out what problems they were trying to avoid in the first place. Well, the problem with all most of these compounds is that they induce uh, severe side effects. So addiction or even respiratory depression uh, that can lead to death. And in fact, in, in the US, there are thousands of of overdose death of patients which go back to the abuse of, of painkillers every, every year. So on the one hand, these chemicals relieve pain. On the other, we have all these side effects. In the brain, what's actually causing these two sets of effects? It's the same receptor and 
the two, two kinds of activations that are induced by, by the morphine derivatives. And all the morphine derivatives activate this receptor in a way that it again switches on signal transduction in the cell, in the neuron, in the central nervous system, and that leads to the, to the analgesia, to the pain-killing effect of the, of the opioids. But at the same time, these, uh, these opioids also uh, lead to recruitment of another protein, which is called beta-arrestin, and that causes most of the side effects. All the morphine-related compounds we have are stimulating this receptor in these two ways, one relieving pain, the other causing these side effects. If it's the same receptor, the mu-opioid receptor, what can you do to get this strong pain-killing effect without the problems? Well, at the first glance, one would think, why shouldn't we look at another receptor? What we did, we, we tried to use our information we had on that receptor and tried to find compounds that selectively activate the G-protein coupling and the G-protein uh, pathway, but not the beta-arresting recruitment. So how did you begin to look at these? Well, we actually, we, we started from scratch because one of us resolved the crystal structure of the mu opioid receptor. We use the structure and uh, try to work with the computer in order to identify compounds that might recognize this binding pocket of, of the receptor. To me, it seems almost like you have the design for a lock in a door. And we're looking for the right key, that's right, that's right. How many different compounds did you actually end up testing? So we used uh, more than three million compounds and uh, that led us actually to one hit. Eventually, you started actually looking at how this does act to kill pain in, in mice. Yes, that was then, of course, the next step, showing uh, energesic effect, pain-killing effect in mice, and also uh, the compound uh, turned out to be very promising in model studies, in animal models that are predictive for uh, for addiction and uh, also for respiratory depression. You start with these three million hypothetical compounds and eventually whittle them down to one. Were you surprised with the results you ended up with? Uh, actually, yes. We did it step by step and every step was surprising, but you're right in the end. You're surprised that, uh, that everything worked out. So is this something that we might one day actually be able to use to treat patients? Well, it will be a long way until from a compound we have at the moment to an approved drug. You can never be sure. That was Peter Gmeiner, who's based at the University of Erlangen in Germany. To find out more about how the team developed this compound, from computer simulations to experiments with mice, head over to nature.com forward slash nature, where you'll find the paper plus the news and views. Now it's time for the research highlights with Corrie Locke in Boston. A shark that lives in the Arctic seas has smashed the record for vertebrate lifespan. The Greenland shark can be found throughout the North Atlantic. Researchers recently radiocarbon dated the cells in the shark's eye lens to figure out the ages of 28 animals. They estimate that the shark can live for 270 to 400 years. The females don't reach sexual maturity until they are more than 100 years old. This could be a concern for conservationists. 
a species that takes so long to start reproducing could be at risk of being overexploited by fisheries. You can learn more about the work in the journal Science. Saturn's largest moon, Titan, has fascinated astronomers because it has several features resembling those on Earth, such as liquid on its surface and a thick atmosphere. Now researchers have discovered another Earth-like feature, erosion. They looked at data from NASA's Cassini spacecraft and found evidence of liquid methane flowing through a network of deep channels and canyons on its way to the Northern Sea. Titan is the only planetary body in our solar system, other than Earth, that is known to have active erosion caused by liquid on its surface. The study was published in the journal Geophysical Research Letters. Time now for our weekly news chat, and Richard Van Norden joins us in the studio. Hi, Richard. Hello, Adam. So first up, we've got a fairly big story which might answer why we exist, or rather why there's any matter left in the universe. So what's actually the fundamental puzzle here? Yeah, the riddle is, why is the universe that we can see filled with matter and not antimatter? So... Antimatter and matter are essentially mirror image kind of particles. And if they were created in equal amounts at the birth of the universe, they would have collided and annihilated each other, leaving just radiation, energy. Well, obviously, we don't see that around us. We see matter and not much antimatter. So how did that happen? How did that massive excess of matter over antimatter happen at the start of the universe? So you said they're pretty much mirror images of each other, but there is this asymmetry we see in the universe around us. What have physicists been looking to to try to explain this asymmetry? So the idea is, well, they can't be exact mirror images. There must be some particles that behave differently. And our story is that they may have found it. It's only a hint because the experiment that's doing this doesn't have enough statistics to be sure. But it looks like uh, neutrinos, these elusive particles that are all around us but are very hard to detect, might be different in their matter and antimatter forms. What exactly were they looking at? What was the experimental setup? So this is in Japan, and they are shooting beams of neutrinos over nearly 300 kilometres to this tank underground, and the tank is filled with 50,000 tonnes of water. And they need all this water because they're trying to detect a neutrino. Uh, you, know, you know, they're streaming through our bodies all the time as we speak, but they hardly ever interact with matters. So they're very hard to see. Now, these neutrinos that they're shooting are of one flavour, it's called. Neutrinos come in three flavours, muon, tau and electron. And the funny thing about neutrinos is that they can oscillate between their flavours as they travel. So, first of all, they shot a beam of muon neutrinos and saw how they changed flavours. How many electron neutrinos do they see at the other end in this tank? Then they did the same thing with muon antineutrinos, the antimatter version. And weirdly, it looks like these beams are not behaving the same way. It looks like these matter and antimatter particles are oscillating at different rates. So you mentioned before that the stats here aren't kind of watertight yet. What kind of numbers are we talking about? Yeah, very, very far from watertight. So after six years of this, they one day thought they'd be able to see 24 electron neutrinos and seven electron antineutrinos, and that's just because antimatter is harder to produce and detect. Well, they didn't see that. They saw 32 matter neutrinos and four 
anti-neutrinos. So, you know, you know, if you if you flip a coin and it comes up with slightly more heads and tails, does that mean the coin's biased? So they obviously need more data. So what do we do? Do we just wait another couple of decades? Well, by 2021, when this experiment's going to end its current run, it will have five times more data. But it needs 13 times more data to get statistical confidence to what you would call three sigma a measure of, of how unlikely the results are to be due to chance. And even that wouldn't be what physicists would call a proof in the sort of Higgs particle sense. That's just kind of reasonable, but not completely convincing evidence. But what they're going to do is they're going to combine their data with an American experiment that's sending a neutrino beam over 800 kilometers from Fermilab to a mine in northern Minnesota. And those two together could reach three sigma by around 2020. Now, to get to the level where you can say, we found this out, five sigma, you're going to have to wait for a new generation of neutrino experiments, which are already being planned around the world. But of course, if it just becomes stronger over the next few years, that's going to be exciting. So let's move on from those tiny stats to another set of actually quite impressively, in this case, small numbers. Cuba has managed to stay relatively Zika-free compared to a lot of its neighbours. Yeah, the Zika virus has spread through the Americas and the Caribbean. Uh, The small island of Puerto Rico has well over 8,500 cases. But Cuba, uh, this large island, as of 11th of August, only had three people who were infected by local mosquitoes. Um, Somehow it's, it's really managed to be the last in the Caribbean to succumb to local transmission of Zika being spread by mosquitoes. And we actually visited Cuba to find out how they'd done this. Um, Effectively, it's down to some very impressive healthcare, public health and surveillance programs that were set up 35 years ago, very far-sighted, of course, to try and stop the introduction of lots of uh, vector-borne diseases. So what kind of measures do they actually have in place? Well, this all started in 1981 when they saw the first outbreak of hemorrhagic dengue in the Americas with more than 344,000 infections. And they basically turned that into an opportunity. Uh, They set up a national reporting system, a framework for cooperation between agencies, education campaigns to encourage spraying and self-monitoring for mosquito bites, and a heavy fine for people who are found to have mosquitoes breeding on their property. So it's eliminate mosquitoes at all costs and effectively with clouds of fumigants, pesticide, which they are spraying around neighbourhoods and and houses. Is this a model that other countries would be able to copy? Well, we talked to the head of the Cuba office at the Pan American Health Organisation about this. And he said it's probably unrealistic for other countries to copy this mosquito control programme, which involved 9,000 soldiers spraying homes, killing mosquito larvae, screening visitors at airports. It's one of the best healthcare networks in the developing world, and its government's been stable for decades that's ensured policy continuity and enforcement of those fines. Um, The most important aspects of a response for any country are increased surveillance and collaboration between government sectors. Now that we have seen new infections arising in Cuba, does that mean there are inevitably going to be more infections or will ramping up efforts be able to keep that under control? There's inevitably going to be more infections, but it seems like Cuba has as good a chance as any country of of keeping the outbreak under control. Richard, thanks a lot for joining us. For more on those stories and for all the latest science news, head over to nature.com forward slash news. 
And remember, we love hearing from you. Get in touch on Twitter at Nature Podcast, email podcast at nature.com, or hit us up independently. I'm at Minnie Kerry on Twitter. And I'm at Climate Adam. That's all from us this week. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Kerry Smith.